Okay. Pray for me, too. I've had some kind of a respiratory thing going on the last few days, and it's still lingering a bit. We're going to be jumping back into Hebrews this morning. Chapter 6, uh, verse 13 through 710. Just remember, everything that we've talked about up to this point has bearing on what we're reading this morning. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more uh, convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We have fled for, uh, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the, the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, uh, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginnings of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the, case, the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, uh, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Well, just remember the pattern that we've seen uh, all through the book, and that is that the author is arguing over and over again from different aspects that Jesus is the greatest of all. Greater than the angels, greater than Moses. Now in this chapter we find him saying that Jesus is greater even than their father Abraham. And because that is true, his priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. Remember the time of Abraham's testing when 
God told him to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, and he did that. And when he got there, he found out that the Lord uh, was going to have him crucify his own son. Can you imagine being, being Abraham? And can you imagine the relief that he felt when God stayed his hand, prevented him from doing it? But it goes to show, you, show us the very depth and degree of the faith of Abraham that he was even willing to do that because of his great love and passion for his God. The Jewish believers to whom the, the author's writing, and again, we don't know for certain who the author of Hebrews actually is, we do know that his audience is uh, largely Jewish people. He knows that they have a very high regard for people like Abraham and Moses. They continue to hold him in very high esteem, But something changed at the time of their conversion, and that is this, and that is that, that even though Moses uh, and Aaron, uh, Abraham and, and the others are important, Jesus is now primary, and everyone else is secondary. The Lord promised Abraham, I will bless you and multiply you. And because we sit on the other side of history, we know that's true. Because 600,000 Israelites came out of Egypt. And that was not in all that many generations. God was faithful. And all of those were descendants of Abraham. In this particular passage, Paul elaborates on Abraham's steadfast belief in the promise of God in writing in, in, in hope against hope. He, that is Abraham, believed in order that he might become a father of many nations. There's a sense in which Abraham is one of the great fathers of the Jewish faith, but at the same time, it's also true that he's one of the great fathers of the Christian faith. There's a big difference, however, in, in the way that Jewish people look upon uh, Abraham compared to the perspective of Christians. What the Jewish people emphasize is the works of Abraham, what Abraham did. Our perspective on Abraham, however, is different. And that is that even though he did some really great things that God called him to do, the, things that we, the thing that we, we focus on more than anything else is the faith of Abraham. Not the doing of Abraham, but the faith behind it. This is what Paul writes 
uh, in Romans chapter 4. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. Remember, Abraham was an old man when God told him all this stuff was going to take place. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Can you imagine? And the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was way beyond the years of childbearing. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he promised he was able to perform. Therefore, he reckoned to him as righteousness, not only for his sake, but for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, as those who believe him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. God delivered on his promises to Abraham so you and I can conclude, can conclude definitively that God will come through with his promises he's made to you and me. We can know with confidence that he will deliver to us all the things that he has promised. John Owen, the Puritan pastor, wrote this. God is now declaring that Abraham should not only be the father of all the nations who would be physically de Sended from him, but the father of all the nations of the world who would in later generations embrace and imitate his faith. Vis a vis, including you and me. promises of God made to our father Abraham continue to be fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. Because of two things. The promise of God and the oath he made to confirm it. Strangely, however, there are a lot of people, even in the church today, that look to Israel to see the fulfillment of the literal Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, as being the key thing, the centermost thing in the fulfillment of God's promises to people like us. He has saved many Jews over the generations. He's saving Jewish people today. But the vast majority of people in the church today are not Jews. They're Gentiles. So the promise has gone out not only to the Jewish people, but also to Gentiles like you and I. And hallelujah for that. If that was not true, then we wouldn't even be here. 
But God in every generation has been faithful in gathering together from all men a people unto himself. Our names being included among them. A gathering of people who have something in common with Abraham, every single one of them, even if, if it's not blood, it's that we have this in common with him. We all have a faith that is common to the faith of Abraham. He believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. You and I believe the gospel of Christ, and it's reckoned to us as righteousness. That is the whole basis for our salvation. It really is an amazing thing that when God looks upon us, he sees us as perfectly righteous. Because I don't know about you, I certainly don't see myself as perfectly righteous. Matter of fact, sometimes I wonder if there's hardly any righteousness there at all. But we must always remember this, that when God the Father looks upon us, he always looks and sees us through Christ. That's what makes us right. That's what gives us the great privilege of having a, a, a living and breathing and growing relationship with our God. We, we persevere, just like Abraham did, for a couple of reasons. It's because of our faith in God. And we can have faith in God for at least two principal reasons. One of those is God has an unchangeable character. In other words, God is as God has always been. He hasn't changed one iota ever, eternally, ever. Because he's absolutely perfect in every way already. There's no way to improve upon him. And not only that, it's not only his changeable, uh, unchangeable character, but his word, his oath, his promise that he's made to us. He holds us sure and steadfast in a state of eternal salvation. You're here because he wanted you. You're here because he wants you to be here. You're here because he made you a part. I think it's pretty sad that probably the vast majority of Christians today believe that their relationship with God depends upon their ability to hold on to him. As weak and feeble as they might be. But let me, let me just say this this morning. I, I, can you imagine being in a greater place of comfort and security and knowing that you are here because God holds you, not because you hold yourself? 
Do you want your salvation to depend upon your ability, your strength, your power? I mean, really, how could you ever have a real assurance of your salvation if it depended upon you at all? We persevere for one reason, and that is because he perseveres. He has sworn a blood oath to us. Not by the blood of lambs or cows or goats, but by the blood of his only begotten. absolute guarantee that he will in every case deliver all of the promise that he has made promises that he has made to us salvation is not a mere possibility for us it is a reality all because it's based upon Christ doing not our own. I've always thought that this mysterious fellow named Melchizedek was pretty cool. I can remember the first time that I uh, <clears throat> I read about him in the book of Genesis, and it's kind of kind of strange and this, that, and the other, and then later on got into the book of Hebrews, and I really understood Melchizedek quite a bit better once I got into Hebrews because he teaches us a lot about Melchizedek that we would not otherwise know. I always thought his name was really kind of, was different. I mean, how many Melchizedeks have you known in your whole lifetime? Uh, the king of Salem First mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Remember the story that the lot, uh, Abraham's nephew, had been taken captive in, in, by an invading army and carried off somewhere. And that Abraham had gone after him with his 380 men, not, not something that we would recognize as much of an army, but maybe those days, and whatever, and how he had gone and he had rescued his nephew Lot. And then he was, when he was returning back, the king of Sodom went out to meet them. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, also went out. It's the first appearance of Melchizedek in the Bible. He's mentioned a few times, not too many times, quite a bit here in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be talking about him again next week because we're not finished with him. Uh, this week, but uh, there you have him in, in, in Genesis. But uh, there's another key passage that applies to Melchizedek that's very important to our understanding of how Christ fits into this picture. And that is Psalm 110, verse 4, where the word says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, this was, this was the dilemma that the Jewish people 
that uh, the author of Hebrews was, was writing to, the dilemma they have was this, is okay. The promise of the king comes through the line of Judah, but the promise of the priest comes through the line of Levi. So how in the world can one person be a king and be a priest at the same time? It was a question that many of the Jewish people struggled with when they were confronted with Christ. It's a question that many of them still struggle with today. It sounds like a pretty good argument. But what the author of Hebrews does is this, is he makes very clear that Levi is not the only priestly line, that there indeed is an even greater priestly line. That the priestly line of Levi is secondary. There, there was a line established in the land. And this is, this is interesting. Because we think that the, the, the picture really begins in Israel once Abraham rises up. But the fact of the matter, there was some semblance of the true practice of religion and worship of God before Abraham even got there. You know, very often, in the Bible does this, you know, it really focuses on particular people, and Abraham's one of them. But very often, there's the rest of the story that we don't even think about. That there were people in the land already who were worshiping the one and true living God. And Melchizedek was one of those. And he went out to meet Abraham. Now he's very mysterious and some people really with not a whole lot of ground to go on come to conclusions like maybe he was a prefiguring of Jesus or appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, you know, and things like that. And I just want to caution anybody from coming to any kind of conclusion like that because there's nothing in Scripture that can help you, that can bring you to that conclusion. Now, we can say this, that he is at least, in a sense, a prefiguring of Christ. In some aspects, because he was both a priest and a king. And again, Psalm 110, verse 4, his priesthood is a higher priesthood than the, that of the Levites. Not a lesser one. So that dilemma for Jewish people has been answered by Scripture. This, ha this is how, in fact, he can be a descendant of David and at the same time be of the priestly line.
David makes reference to that, reflects that in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Levi? No, Melchizedek. Very mysterious character. We're going to, we've read this. It's because of, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues to priest forever. You could almost substitute the name Jesus there. And again, some people believe that he is a pre incarnate appearance of Christ. Well, some things we need to take note of. One of those is this, is by paying homage to Melchizedek, Abraham, great father Abraham, acknowledged his superiority over him. no doubt about it, Abraham is a key and central figure, a very important, prominent figure in three different religions. Judaism, Islam, Christianity. So a lot of people say this, that those three religions have, a lot, have common roots, and in a sense they do. But there's a huge difference between the way Christians look upon Abraham than Muslims and Jews look upon Abraham. They emphasize the actions and the works of Father Abraham. Christianity, on the other hand, emphasizes his faith and trust in God. In other words, we see him as a great hero for an entirely different reason. Not because of his actions, but what resulted from his actions and what caused his actions. Abraham was Levi's great-grandfather. So when all of this has taken place, there was no Levi. It looks as though, and we don't know for certain, but it looks as though Abraham actually died before Levi was even born. You know, very often, obviously, we believe in the Trinity. There's no doubt about that. We don't, I don't doubt it for one minute that God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? 
but you don't get a whole lot of that from the Old Testament. Our understanding of the Trinity primarily comes from the New Testament. But let me just point this out. Uh, one of the things I want to say before I forget this morning is this, is we need to understand is there was true religion going on again in, in the land before Abraham got there. Melchizedek is a representation of that. The word El, E-L, is actually a Canaanite, uh, Canaanite word. That was the Canaanite name for God, El. Now, if you know anything about the Hebrew, you understand that Elohim is the Jewish name for God, which is actually the plural of El. Do the Jews believe in a plurality of God? No. But isn't it strange that the, that the name they came up with is plural when they believe in one and only God? There really is no explanation for it. You know, I tried to dig through and, and whatever, and some people try to explain it and whatever, but none of it makes any sense. Why in the world would the Jewish people decide to call the one true God a name that is plural? Could it possibly be that it's a reflection of the Trinity? We don't believe that there's three gods, but we believe that there are three persons of God. In that light, Elohim makes sense. Apart from it, it doesn't at all. I just think that's kind of cool. I don't know. One of those things that popped into my head one day, and uh, this has been a while back, the first time I thought about this. Why in the world would the Jewish name for God be plural? Why? So was Melchizedek an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Well, we, we see, no. We, I think we can, we can definitively say, no, he wasn't. But at the same time, there is a sense in which he is a prefiguring or a type of Christ. Not the Christ. I mean, in, just, just read the description of him here. He doesn't sound anything like any other person I've ever heard anything about 
at all. Sounds like he's had no beginning. So on and so on. But I mean the point here is this. Is that Jesus is king in the order of Judah slash David. But he's not priest according to the order of Levi. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which is a higher priestly order. And as such, he rules over heaven and earth as we speak. He is the ultimate priest king. He rules over heaven and earth as a king. He intercedes perpetually on our behalf before the throne of grace as our priest. So what does all that mean for you and I? Is there any part for us in this picture? Well, certainly there is. There's a sense in which Christians, just like Christ, are called to intercede on behalf of other people. In other words, it's part of our job. And the principal manner in which that takes place, I would say, is what we call through intercessory prayer. That when we lift the names of unbelievers before the throne of grace, pleading for salvation, that we, in essence, are intercessors on their behalf. Bring them to God's attention. I hope you guys are all prayer warriors. Prayer is absolutely critical and important. You can't get along without it if you ever have any hope of growing in your faith. It will never happen apart from it. Because what prayer is, is is, is basically an outward picture of an inward thing that's going on. And that is basically a growing, ever-growing understanding of our absolute and humble reliance upon God for everything. But I hope all of you have a prayer list, people that you pray for on a regular basis. And I hope some of the people on that list our fellow believers we need to be in prayer for each other right but I hope upon all hope that at least a few people on your regular prayer list are unbelievers and you're praying for their salvation do you understand that 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 is how you and I principally and primarily serve the office of priesthood as Christians that's what priests do. They intercede. They stand between God and the other person in a person. 
And that's why we call it intercessory prayer. We're lifting the names of unbelievers before the throne of grace, pleading for their salvation. Well, let me just say this, that, you know, being reformed, sometimes people get the wrong idea of what it means to be reformed because being reformed basically means that God has determined everything that's going to come to pass, period, 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 can't do anything about it, I can change anything, so why pray? I mean, why would God call us to pray for the salvation of other people when he's already determined from the very beginning of time who's going to be saved and who's not? Are we going to change his mind? Is that the purpose of intercessory prayer, to change the mind of God? Certainly not. If you believe that, then your God's not very big. So why do we do it? Because there's a lot of things that describe Christianity, and one of those is the word hope. We're hoping as we're praying for the salvation of those people. Knowing that God must do it, we can't do it but it's our hope, our passion, that he will. When I first became a believer, most of you have heard something of my story. It shocked a lot of people around me, which I never understood because I didn't think I was all that bad of a person to start with. <laughs> Later on, I figured I out I really was but I had one of my very best friends guy uh, you know one of those people those close people that you have that you tell things to that you wouldn't tell to just about it, everybody else you know what I mean that kind of thing and he and I had known each other for a few years and we were pretty close but he became a Christian and Uh, he began witnessing to me and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, and then, then eventually I came to faith. And, and what he said to me was this. He said, you know what? I prayed to you, for you. I witnessed to you. I hoped for you. But I never thought in a million years you, you would ever become a Christian. But I did. And his prayers had something to do with it. And we all understand that God had predetermined everything that was going to come to pass, even my salvation. But he used this friend of mine in the process. 
And that's, that's one of the greatest privileges of a believer is when God uses you directly in the life of another person as he draws them to himself. The sense that you get when you know that God has used you in that process, there's nothing you could use to describe it. It's the most wonderful feeling and knowledge that I think any of us could ever have. To be used by God in that manner. I don't care how hard the nut is, God can crack it. And he does it all the time. And sometimes I think he does, he saves some of the people that he does so that people will just be absolutely awestruck. Because very often the people that he does call are not the people necessarily that we thought he was going to call. See, we have a God who is full of surprises. And the biggest surprise for each one of us ought to be me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I. Thank you, Father Abraham. To thank you even more, his God. Far more. Next week we will move on.